What's up, everybody? This is Shaheen Hakimi, and you're listening to Live at the Cafe, recorded live at Venture Cafe Cambridge, where innovation is for everyone. The following round-robin discussion took place at Venture Cafe Cambridge during our annual Robotics and AI Connect conference. Four experts representing distinct industries present the latest developments and current applications of AI and machine learning to their sector of practice. Moderated by Chris Requina, the discussion features Randy Tate of iFlip, Sharis Loveland of ML Assist, and Gargarin Oliver of Cape Start. To find out more about our next conference or theme night, please visit us online at VentureCafeCambridge.org. Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming tonight. My name is Yulia. I'm the events manager here. Welcome to Robotics and AI Connect, our annual mini conference. Venture Cafe is a nonprofit organization. All of our programming is free and open to the public. We're able to make all of this happen. Thank you to the support of corporate innovators like MathWorks who are supporting us tonight. We are audio and video recording this session, so please wait for this mic to be passed on to you before you begin asking your question. Please don't forget your belongings in this room. Put any garbage you have in the recycling bins on the way out and uh, enjoy the night. Let me pass this mic on to Chris Rekena from Boston New Technology and let's get it started. Thank you so much, Julia and Venture Cafe for having us here. I'm Chris Rekena, lead organizer for Boston New Technology and the Boston AI Network and we welcome you all to this session. And we are geared towards educating people on entrepreneurial topics, technical topics, supporting local innovation, and we have startup showcases every month. And I'm proud to have just joined the team of Cape Start and have our CEO featured tonight as the first speaker. So we specialize in software and app development and machine learning and AI, um, including data cl cleaning and preparation solutions. So. Please talk to us if you have any questions or interest in that. And I think with that, we can welcome Gagarin Oliver from Cape Start. Thank you, Chris. OK. <clears throat> um, I know the topic is uh, interesting use cases. and. What I thought was I would package it as interesting use cases and how uh, they are getting implemented in the market today, right? <clears throat> um, this is a concept that many of you may have seen, uh, but oh, I have to stand in one place. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so AI today is in the first column. It's like a, a narrow intelligence, as they call it. And my experience with AI really started when it was really, really narrow. Um, almost 20 years ago, early 90s, I worked for a company called Voice Control Systems, which made speech recognition systems. And at that point, all that it could do was recognize yes, no, zero, one, two, three, and so forth. And even at that time, you know, we were able to make money out of it because there was an application. Remember the old uh, DTMF phones where you press something and the IVRs and many people had rotary phones and they couldn't really press it. So our speech recognition was sitting there and doing it. And uh, artificial general intelligence 
this is something uh, which is coming up. Not sure if all of us will see it in our lifetime. Uh, I think the thing that people get confused between uh, a system which is able to recognize speech, as an example, Siri, uh, and it can do everything if you want. It's not true, right? It can only be trained on the specific domain in which it is uh, built. And hence, even though it looks like it's able to understand everything and respond, it's not connected to every other backend system, as an example. So unlike a human being, uh, it's really not a, having that uh, general intelligence. <clears throat> and the third category is the so-called superintelligence which is machines being able to do things what human beings cannot even imagine. I don't know what it is, but apparently that's coming, right? And uh, the reason I put up this slide is at least the practical applications which are there in the market today is all over there. And my examples are all based on that too, right? And the uh, I know uh, uh, Chris gave a quick intro. The other reason how we came across some of these applications is because of our company's experience, where we are uh, helping multiple AI applications, both in software development as well as uh, data gathering and data curation and so forth. So the examples I use in my uh, talk are, for most part, our customers, right? So in my opinion, successful applications have three components. Right, so artificial intelligence applications. Some of them look very uh, normal. Every application should have an intuitive user interface. In artificial intelligence applications, that is, I think it is even more important. And we'll cover uh, using some examples of how that's relevant. And the second thing, you know, for artificial intelligence, the discussion is always, is it going to replace human beings? But in my experience so far, humans have to be in the loop somewhere, either before you build it, and in some cases, even when the application is in production, there has to be human involvement. Uh, I, don't, I don't exactly know whether that will increase the number of humans required for many applications to work, or it will reduce. That jury is still not out. But uh, I was listening to a general, apparently he controls uh, jet fighters, which are all you know, controlled by joysticks, by people sitting in Arizona, and that's in operation in the Middle East. And his thesis was, previously when there was a jet plane going on, the number of people required to make the system going, and there was only one pilot up there. But right now, to really operate that and make it relevant and useful, they have 100 people or so per jet, right? So there could be a scenario, and I hope so, that with more of AI coming in, uh, the need for human in the loop is actually going to increase. Um, last but not least, which is probably the most important one, it's all about data. If you don't have data, there is no AI. And uh, data, just not a lot of data, but data has to be in a format that's useful, right? So Siri, this is about user interface, right? Now we are talking about user interface. Siri probably has one among the best user interface. It understands everything that you say, at least we think. So here's a real example, right? I was talking to a friend about CBD products, 
And she said, oh, it's not there anywhere. I'm like, you know, CVS should have it. So obviously, what do we do? We get and ask Siri a question. So the great news here is it exactly understood what I was asking. You see that? But it made a mistake in its result. It just gave me address of CVS closer to from where I was asking this question. So only if it had acknowledged that, okay, I don't have access to the inventory of CVS, but I found some news articles where apparently CVS is going to carry it, that would have been a smarter response, right? And uh, I think, you know, maybe obviously the smart people at Apple have their own reasons as why they don't do that, but uh, it's a classic example of uh, someone who's not really taking care of the better user interface so that the application is pleasant for the customer to use. Because in this case, I once again have to go search and all that and find out <clears throat> if you guys are interested. It's not there in Massachusetts stores yet. <laughs> That's what I found out uh, eventually, right? Another example, sorry for this picture. It, uh, the editorial didn't uh, kick in at the right time before I had to send uh, slides to Yulia. But uh, this is one of our customers, Lumindex, whose product is a really good computer vision algorithm which will identify skin rashes, right? And their initial focus is identifying skin rashes in the private parts. Imagine making a user taking a picture which the system can accurately recognize and then give the proper answer. Obviously, they had challenges in terms of getting enough data set to make sure this thing works well and whatnot. But this was a big challenge. How do you guide the user so that they'll do the right job? I'm sure most of you have experienced depositing checks and so forth. I mean, it took a while, right? The early versions were always uh, faltering. And then eventually, they figured it out. Move it there, move it there. And there, you have a very controlled environment. Even there, it's very difficult. This one, especially if somebody is trying to do it without other people noticing in a secrecy, it's embarrassing, and half the people give up. And you know, uh, ultimately, it looks like the system failed, but it's not the system it's failing, per se, from an AI perspective. It is the user interface, which is not working yet. So you know, in software, it's almost binary, right? It works or not works. But in AI, it's not a binary. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And, uh, you know, in, in my experience, to be honest, I think I became a good sales guy because my first job was selling speech recognition. If you can go tell someone and make them write a check, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Then I think you have figured out the way of pitching uh, products and uh, you can make it happen. So AI is something where you need to implement expectation management. You need to somehow communicate to the user hey, there may be errors, and it's your job to figure out or you know, uh, take the right path, and either it's through a voice interface or through a UI that puts information. Uh, it's actually very important to make an application successful that you somehow communicate that you can expect some failures in this. I'm not a, I'm actually simulating a human person. Humans will also make mistakes, but it's tough for us to communicate that as a software that I can make a mistake because the uh, understanding and thinking about software is we never make mistake in software, right? So design for errors, there will be errors and you need to make sure the system forgives uh, 
the mistakes that it makes, that, that rather the user forgives the mistakes that the system makes. I think there's a reason for why Siri and Alexa and all those products are cracking jokes and you know appearing silly, because you eventually say, okay, yeah, you know, it's fun. I'll talk to it. Sometimes it, oh, it's okay. Sometimes it's not. People accept it. I think there are some user interfaces where they name the product itself with child names and cartoon names. So just while you are interfacing itself, you are like, okay, you know, the expectations are low, and uh, that is something. Uh, which makes very successful applications. Another uh, uh, important thing, and this is common with a lot of uh, user interface, if the user is intervening and sort of communicating an error, some systems, you know, keep going. I did not get the digits, please press one. I mean, that's a very classic example that keeps going and going, and user frustration, and that results in systems not being very effective. So human in the loop, um, this is a live example of one of our customer. Very interesting application where they take the millions of uh, blogs and news articles and whatever comes in. And every morning, it has to be curated. And there's a newsletter that goes out with the top 10 things the C-level executives of big companies are expecting. right? And it's impossible to do it without human intervention. Not because you cannot aggregate all of them. There are spiders which can aggregate all of it. Not because you can apply some you know, easy, good keywords and all that and filter it. But because it's going to the CEO, who is probably not even getting out of his or her bed, and they're looking at it the first thing in the morning it's to see what's the most important thing they should pay attention related to their company and whatnot. So you cannot have even one mistake. If you have one mistake, one relevant article, the PR department is going to hear about it, and you know they'll be in trouble. So what Fullintel does is uh, a typical supervised learning uh, uh, where the machine learning would classify the articles into the different sections it has to go. And if the confidence level is high, it goes as an output. And But if the confidence level is low, it's a human being who's now making a decision whether that should go this side and if it goes this side, uh, that information is passed back. And if it is not going this side also, that information is passed back, right? I mean, customer thinks, wow, magic comes out. It really does <laughs> because uh, they are able to handle millions of articles because of ML. But there's also a human in the process who is training the machine on an ongoing basis. And eventually, the output that comes here is always 100%, right? It's always not possible to have applications like this, but in my opinion, wherever there's possible to have an application where some uh, workflow like this is suitable, or it is one of those things, I, I bet, you know, I don't know this for a fact, all your uh, uh, virtual assistant applications that you have. You copy some assistant's name in your email, and boom, your meeting gets scheduled and all that. I can bet somebody is doing this manually, or at least they are watching it. And right there, you know, it's not like one of those applications people are expecting immediate response. It's like if the meeting is scheduled 15 minutes later, they understand that. That's what the human secretary does that also, right? So I think, you know, wherever application, and that also, this is also a great place to start the application, even if you don't have tons of training data, even if your model is not fully trained, you have an option to put it in production and keep fine-tuning it so that the engine becomes smarter and smarter over a period of time, right? 
the other place, obviously, human in the loop uh, comes in is before you launch an application, you need training data. I mean, I don't, uh, I'm assuming, given it's Kendall Square, a lot of people know the fundamentals of uh, ML, but ML's like human beings. You have to teach it to be able to understand. So I'm going to go through three different examples of how it's done. But basically, the uh, model here is if you need to train a medical application or an e-commerce application or a chatbot, you have to initially come up with a training data set. And I know there are uh, emerging technologies where you only need a small sample and subsequently the machine will learn by itself. Those are all emerging. And, but at least so far, whatever is there in production and what really works is where someone is taking setup data and then labeling it, training it, annotating it, pushing it through the algorithm, and then testing it again and again, and only then the output is coming out, right? So in our case, we, we do a lot of medical applications, and you know all the uh, top providers, at least from our perspective of whoever is doing radiology in AI, we have uh, a partnership with them, including the biggest healthcare group in Boston. I'll just leave it like that, right? You guys can figure it out who it is. So, in those cases, you do have to get thousands of x-rays and MRIs and CT scans. And we have people who are trained in radiology who will come and do the annotation. And they are you know, not only drawing around the vertebrae, they are making some notes here, which I don't understand. You need really trained uh, people to do it. One among the big reasons why AI in radiology is not taking off <coughs> is because of this, because the data has to be come and label. It's extremely uh, costly to do it uh, here. And most likely, the radiologist and uh, other people who are capable of doing it will not sign up to do it. And so we have an overseas model. Uh, our team is in India. And so we actually have certified radiologists and radiology technicians who find this job to be better than them getting exposed to x-ray uh, every single day. And we have asked people why you are willing to sit in a desk and do it. This is the top reason, in addition to, you know, we pay them well and so forth. So uh, this is how it's done. Another example, I think this is from a chat. So in a chat application, they are actually taking the current chat that's going on, online chat and customers and whatnot, and you're actually labeling it in different ways as how they want the automated chat to be able to recognize it. And you know situations like this, it's actually good that they have uh, history and they can go label it and do it. Uh, there are different techniques people use, but at the end of the day, you have a starting point which is purely based on existing data. So data, I think clean data is better. You know, We have a potential e-commerce customer, I should say, who said, oh, I need to be able to predict based on color and texture of the uh, item, what will be the uh, sales, and what item should I stock? Well, like, great, let's see your data. They have data on all the inventory and what happened, but nobody has inventory items tagged by color and texture, right? So they have big data, but not useful data, and now we need to go through a process of making it uh, suitable for AI. Somebody will tell me time. I'm not watching. Yeah. 
wrapping up. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have asked. <laughs> uh, so, so you know, there's like the feature extraction. None of them are standard, right? In in natural language processing, if you're feeding a big bunch of text to the system, uh, you want to remove your spaces and commas and symbols and all that. But stop, stop. When you have a finance application, you need that to be able to introduce that, hey, this is relevant to finance and so forth. Even the software development process needs a redesigning. It's like every time I tell my engineers, you know, why don't you guys didn't figure it out in the stand-up? They're like, how do we figure this out in the stand-up? We just still need more data. And I think that's the whole process of figuring this out. Um, so people are involved in data collection, labeling, transcription, blah, blah, some of the examples that we went through. I'll skip this. And uh, I think, you know, irrespective of what's the application, deep learning is probably the one where people are projecting that with less training data, uh, you can accomplish better results. But uh, in our opinion and uh, experience, we've seen uh, all three components that I described apply for all the different technologies, irrespective of what tool we are using and how we are packaging it. With that, thank you very much. And <laughs> yeah. Are we doing Q&A now or? Uh, no, no time for time at the end. We'll, we'll All right. Thanks, Gagarin. So with that, I'd like to ask you to welcome our next expert speaker, Sharis Loveland. Thanks so much, Chris and Gagarin, for that. Uh, in fact, that was a wonderful lead-in to a natural language processing use case in ETAIL. So um, thanks so much for the, uh, the layup there. Uh, so I'm the co-founder of ML Assist, a boutique consultancy in AI and machine learning, and I've been a product manager in the field of artificial intelligence for about four years, starting with Microsoft uh, working on Azure Machine Learning back in 2016. So uh, first we're going to talk a little bit about the process of creating and structuring data, how to get it into a workable state to be used as natural language processing. And then we're really going to go into, you know, what were the goals of this project, what were the details, what were we trying to achieve, and what were those results. So. Without further ado, uh, just to, to level set a bit on the technology, uh, you apply a topic model um, to really structure and organize the data uh, in the way that you want. Um, the most common form of this is LDA, latent distant allocation, um, in order to set up a kind of a working dictionary for the type of data that you want to work with. Um, and in addition, uh, you want to get uh, a bag of words model put together. So it's kind of like creating categories of or buckets of words so that we can then ingest uh, big data sets of natural language processing. Um, so the frequency of occurrence of each word uh, is then used as a feature of that classifier. And let me show you a little bit about what that looks like. Um, so essentially, you put all of the words in and then you actually take account of how those words are um, coming in like for instance if it says model twice it'll make a count of two so back to our use case so this is a Boston based e-retailer uh, locally and we wanted to maximize sales and what is one of the best ways to maximize sales it is showing our customers relevant products that are personalized for them 
So um, just like uh, we saw in the last speech, labeling data is incredibly time intensive and a frustrating process. We had no labeled data to begin with. So we decided rather than going with image recognition of our inventory, we needed to find another source of data. So we decided to go with product descriptions of words. The specific use case we were looking for was in our boutiques that we sold, there are individual products. Um, and so on the product detail page, if you scroll down, you'll see a list of five or six products you may also like. We wanted to replace that data stream with our own homegrown data stream using these natural language processing approaches and increase the click-through rate on those items. Uh, so that was our goal. We had an 8% uh, engagement rate, also called click-through. We were trying to get to 12, and we were actually able to uh, double that click-through rate to 16% for folks who landed on, say, a blazer on our website who would then click-through with similar items. So let me take you through the science of how we did that. Uh, essentially, to start with, um, we prepped our data, and then we chose which topic model we were going to use. Um, then we chose a couple of models uh, for our algorithms, and then we created kind of a master algorithm based on these. And then we uh, tried it, we refined it, and then put it into production. So those are our six steps. So to start with, we had product attributes that were already on the website. As you can see, this is a pretty sparse data set. Not a whole lot of information going on. So we went back to our vendors who we worked with and we said, do you have more information? And in fact, they did. So if you look at the before up here, what they had was kind of a run-on sentence of information. So using that bag of words approach that I explained earlier, we were able to actually structure our data into these columns and uh, mine the text and name with techniques like bag of words. This was a really uh, big hurdle of the project, probably the worst, and so that's where companies like Capestart come in to enable folks to get the data structured in such a way that you can actually then use it for effective machine learning products. It's not just you plug some stuff into an algorithm. It has to be the right stuff that you plug in. So we wanted to, uh, again, make these recommendations down here, if you're looking at this dress, really, really relevant to the user. And our third party uh, tool for doing this was not giving us the best results. So that's why we were at an 8% engagement rate. So when we took that structured data and built a couple of algorithms, we were able to get a really targeted set based on the color and the type and the kind of the product. So let's take a, a deep dive at what that looks like. Uh, so here's some results. And we used natural language processing, and we used uh, a couple specific models here. So I'm going to uh, explain uh, TFIDF and then word to vect So term frequency, inverse doc frequency, is very similar approach to that bag of words. What we're trying to do is isolate the unique words. So if dress is listed a certain number of times, that's not an important word. So let's look at what is more important and more meaningful in that text and take those huge paragraphs and boil them down to a smaller 
amount of information. And the word to VEC does predictive modeling. And the way you interpret and analyze both of those is through a process uh, that looks at the similarity called cosine similarity that I have a slide on in a moment. Uh, right here. So we've got our friendly Kung Fu Panda helper showing us. So you're looking at converting words into a number. And cosine similarity is essentially looking at the measure of closeness. So if you are charting a line, uh, one and one, they go, they're exactly equal, right? So it goes in the same direction. And uh, right here. And so let's say you have 1 and 0.89. Measuring this angle is the cosine similarity. So when you apply this and convert those words to numbers, what you end up with is something like this, is you have uh, numbers, um, numbers that align to uh, similar words. So kind of this TFIDF de-weights those uh, frequently occurring words and draws down the data set. So here's the before and after of the TFIDF process. You can see uh, dress is mentioned so much that it's eliminated in this set of tokens. And in the word to vec uh, it's predictive tech, so it's analyzing um, huge open source sets of words to try to understand um, what is likely, based on our learning already in this, uh, using this library, what will happen next. So for instance, the cat sits on the mat based on this context, and it looks at semantic meanings. And again, this works in the same process of how, how closely aligned are these words when calculated to numbers in mathematical space. Let's calculate a similarity score based on that. So if you think about these numbers here, this is the, the best example of that. Remember the angle with our Kung Fu Panda friends? So wine is 0.8946 away from cherry. Uh, 0.88204. So these are all ways to describe red, and this is how they're mathematically calculated to be similar to one another. So these are the numbers that correspond to these tokens of words when we calculate that cosine similarity. So we've chosen our two models. We have the word to VEC, focusing on the most important words. Um, and the TF-IDF to describe the overall type of the item. So when we put all of these together to make one model to focus on what product should we recommend, we in fact combine them. So we've got our TF-IDF model, a model for color, and a model for detail. So that would be things like hem length, uh, boat collar, buttons, zippers. So all of those descriptors go into the detail model. And then we come up with a weighted average, and you can the data scientist can adjust these weights as we go. And if you put in a skew for a red dress, it will spit out these three similar items. And you can see they are of similar lengths and cuts. Uh, so here are some additional results of, uh, we have a maxi dress here, and uh, very similar pastel shades. 
and we can show uh, cross divisions, so going from dresses to blazers to shoes to other categories that we offer, we in fact get an amazing amount of similarity without changing the model very much. Uh, so we were able to build it once and operationalize it at the ideal weights for those three models. Uh, here's some jackets. Uh, you can see the blue and gray uh, highlighted here. Uh, and again, at this one, the base model will spit out 16 of these. And here it looks like we just ran out of blue inventory. And while we were live on the site, we only show the first five items. But we had a back end to help some internal boutique creators and other designers work with the data and allow them to actually control the weights on those three models. So if they were very color focused or very accessory focused on like the enclosure and the kind and type, that they could slide those on a, a scale and de-weight or more heavily weight one of those inputs to the algorithm. Also works with shoes. You can see the, the wedge type, a lot of wedges here, and one stiletto, even jewelry, and purses, and shades. Moisturizers and luggage. Who would have imagined that it also would work on moisturizers and luggage? That really surprised us. Um, so we did run into you know, various issues, challenges uh, in the data set. Um, Pretty much, uh, if we're what we found is we had dirty data, and that's usually what threw us off is something was misclassified. So a lot of times we had to recover for that. One of the biggest challenges is as a flash sale site, the inventory turnover is so heavy that we had to make sure to run the model nightly. Um, so that was it for my uh, natural language processing use case in e-retail. Does anyone have a question about the natural language processing? Uh, let me bring you the mic. Or do you have a second one? Thank you. This is an example in English. Do you have examples in other languages? Um, I haven't worked uh, internationally personally. Um, I, so I, I don't have any. Um, I, I would love to go to French and do some natural language processing there. Je parle français. Si quelqu'un veut que je t'aide. Any other questions about natural language processing e-retail before I turn it over to our next speaker, Randy? I think okay. we're good, Chris. All right. Thank you, Charis. Please welcome our next speaker, Randy Tate from iFlip. Thanks, Chris. All right, so when, um, when Chris asked me to come talk to you guys, he gave me a, a clear directive that he was bringing in speakers in different industries and showing how AI is applicable across industries. Makes sense? So I'm, on the, I'm the finance guy. So our company is an AI-driven uh, platform that automates and manages the stock market. The intent behind it is to allow the average person to participate in the market like an institution would. All right, and so I'm gonna, just real quickly, the financial services space is one of the last to adopt technology. 
they don't like to change. They don't like to move. They like to keep everything as is. And so it's been one of the slowest changing. In fact, there's only been really three major efficiency innovations. And we like to think of AI as an efficiency innovation. It makes something more efficient. You know, Netflix didn't invent watching movies. They just made it much more efficient to do so. And that's, that's the way we think about what we do. So if you, I'm going to just do this real quickly. If you go way back after the Great Depression, the first major upgrade in, um, in uh, making it easier and more efficient was mutual funds. They, you know, they just set up to be a big, giant group of funds man, where everybody can invest and one person manages it. A little while later, the next innovation was ETFs. Same system, same concept, big bundle of stocks, except passively managed, so it costs less and performs just as good or better. But now we're doing it a little bit different. We're using AI. So what we do is we set people up with a portfolio of individual stocks. So you can have one, you can have one, you can have one. Every single person can have a different portfolio, or you can have one that is already pre-made. Each individual stock on the platform has its own algorithm attached to it. So it performs and functions independently of the rest of the portfolio. So if you're in the finance space, you know that's quite unique. You could have 11 stocks with 11 different algorithms all performing inside a single portfolio. And it's all driven by the AI, which we refer to as algorithmic intelligence, or you know, uh, Charis refers to it as deep learning, because the algorithms learn from algorithms that learn from algorithms. So the machine learns from the machine that learned from the machine. And they've been running this way since the 1980s with my, my business partner. And so what we we're going to talk about here and what the AI really does. Ooh, what? Oh, there's a camera. So I'll back up. There you go. Got it. You guys look at the close-up. That's awesome. Um, so... Essentially, what we're talking about is a shift in the, in the industry. The industry currently is much riskier than most people believe because we don't remember 2007 and 8. So it's been bull, it's been great, everybody's winning. But basically, risk management occurs when somebody says this is risky to own. Makes sense. I mean, that, that's about as simple as it can be. Now, there's two myths that drive the industry. That, that we're dispelling with AI. Myth number one is that buying and holding, meaning you must be in the market to make money, that's a myth. How many of you have heard before that you must be in the market to make money? That's absolutely not true. Cash is actually a position, and it is possible to make more money in cash than being invested. I'm going to show you some examples in a minute how the AI treats it. Okay, um, and regarding current information, there is, there is no regard for it. So I'm going to show you guys a little sign graph and how it works. If you went down to an advisor or a professional financial services person today and you gave them a lump of cash or money or your 401k or IRA, it doesn't matter, they'll put that to work tomorrow with no regard for what's been going on. And I'm going to show you why that's a really bad idea. Okay? And if you ask why, why'd you do that? They'll say, well, you can't time the market. So why would I do that? Well, you actually, in fact, can time the market. It is possible. So I'm going to show you how that works as well. The other myth that I'm not going to talk too much about right here is diversification. 
How many of you, raise your hand and, and look around the room and see how many people raise their hand if you've heard that the best way to mitigate risk in the stock market is through proper diversification? It's a myth. It's not true. It's not true. Now, was it true when mutual funds came out and ETFs were around? Yes. It's just not true anymore. All right? Um, because today, the way it works is there is no regard for where the market is, and it's all in all the time. Now, even, even the most crazy gambling poker player doesn't go all in all the time. You know, how long are you going to last in Vegas if you sit down before you have your cards and you just go all in? It's the same thing with your money if it's being traditionally managed. So now let's talk a little bit about what we do. Many of you, if you're in the math or science world, you're familiar with the sign graph. You know what this is. I'm using this as a simple example. This is not what the stock market looks like. It doesn't, doesn't do it exactly that. It's for, it's for demonstration, so we're clear. All right, so what you're seeing here is an identifiable pattern, right? Simple. You got a line on the top, you got a line on the bottom, you got a max top, you got a max bottom. I'm showing you everything that's on there. I didn't animate it because we don't have a ton of time. So does it make sense if you could recognize the pattern to buy around here where you know the market's, or the market's bottom and it's turned the corner, would that be the optimal place to buy? Yes. And then once it's peaked and started turning down, would that be the optimal place to sell? Simple. Everybody gets that. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Here's what AI does that humans can't do when we talk about risk. So when you buy something here and try to sell it here, you're owning it over a lifespan. That's, that lifespan from here to here, that's your risk. All right? When you can't identify the pattern, it becomes a guessing game, an opinion. I saw a tweet. I heard something on the news. It creates differentiators as to making decisions. Computers are very good at identifying patterns. They're great at it, and they don't have an opinion. When you write algorithms in such a manner that the pattern creates itself inside the algorithm, the algorithm identifies the pattern, you reduce risk. Do you win 100% of the time? No, you're not. You're going to increase your chances because down here at the bottom, somewhere below the known bottom, you put a stop. I'm giving you really simple terms. There's more to it. But this means when you're using an algorithm that buys here, your risk is only, most of the time, about a third of the risk of the traditional means, the manual doing of it. Does that make sense to you guys? So that is what we do. We have a bank of algorithms that are designed to identify patterns inside the stock market that are designed to not buy at the lowest low, not sell at the highest high. They're designed to mitigate risk by buying once the market has proven it's going up or selling once it's proven it's going down. It is not intraday. We're not making tons of trades. An average portfolio is only going to have about 30 trades a year. The idea is to be long or be hedged out in cash. 
Now, how does that work? People always ask, well, how, how good does that work and how long have you guys been around? Well, real quickly, the, like you said, my name is Randy Tate. I'm a software expert, not a finance guy. My business partner, his, his name is Kelly Korshak. Uh, if you go look him up on our website, you can read all about him, but he went to Stanford's physics program when he was 16. He, in the 80s, Deutsche Bank's board of directors handed him $6 billion to manage with these, this mathematical system. And he's done that for multiple other big names like Paul Tudor Jones, Solomon Brothers, Brevin Howard. He's just had a career of phenomenal um, money management. So now, how's it how well does it work? That's always the question. Well, let's look at the last full year. I, I'll update this in about a month and a half. 2018, right? In 2018, we had only four preset portfolios that were running all year long. You can also, by the way, if you're sophisticated enough, you can create your own. You can go pick from the algorithms and the stocks and build your own portfolio, and it'll, it will trade fully automatically for you. We don't like that emotion to come in. Once you hit go, trust the math. So if you look at this, the, the S&P in uh, 2018 lost 6%. I'm sure most of you guys are aware of that. Ours did anywhere from 4.5 to 24 on the automation. Now I'm talking January 1 to December 31. So only we got it apples to apples. And one I really want you to see is this one right here. This one is just an algorithm trading just the S&P 500. It's just trading the spider. It owned it just over 60% of the year is all it owned it, yet it beat it by 12%. AI beats the human. All right? This is just for one year, though, so people are always like, hey, it's only one year. What else? All right. So, so AI versus buy and hold over time. Everybody's seen this chart. The blue is the S&P 500. It's what it's looked like since the turn of the, of the you know, 2000, since 1999. So when you look at this, we all remember 2002, and we really all remember 2008. Uh, you guys had wonderful years that time. Um, this is the AI trading it, okay? What happens when the blue line takes the sharper dips down over an extended period? What does the red line do? Goes flat, which means what? You're out. So are you making more money by not being in the market than you would be if you were invested here? So you see how being invested all the time is not necessary to make money in the markets. Does that make sense? Now, the idea is just to stay slightly ahead. Um, I don't know all of your background. I'm assuming since we're in a technology place, you guys are familiar with things like sharp ratios. Who knows what a sharp ratio is? A couple of you. I'll give you a real simple math lesson. Sharp ratio is a risk number. A sharp of one means you risk $1 to make $1. Higher the sharp, the better. When you invest in a traditional mutual fund, they have sharp ratios of around 0.35. You're risking a dollar to make 35 cents. If you just bought the S&P 500, right here, just this, this sharp ratio is 0.36. You risked a dollar to make 36 cents. Now notice the smoothness of the journey. That's the big difference. There's the risk uh, uh, remover right there. Sharp ratio on this portfolio, 1.2. If you went down to a traditional advisor, and if there's any in here, you can agree with me or not, and ask them to put you into a fund or a platform or a program with a sharp ratio over one, they will most likely tell you that's a unicorn. They don't exist except in private, very large hedge funds. That's what we're doing for the average person. 
So what about the big losses over time? Let's go all the way back to 87. 87, market dropped 33. Algorithm dropped 9. Machine beats human. Average savings in all the big dips, in the last eight of them at least, over 20%. If you lose less than 20, you lose less, you have more money to work, which means you grow exponentially more over time. Does that make sense? So in these use cases, I'm trying to give you guys different examples of how having AI manage your money is much, is much better over time because it simply reduces risk. Also happens to be a whole lot cheaper, all right? Now, one last example, and I'll be done right here. I'm going to kind of put it all together and show you what it looks like. Traditional investing in a buy and hold mentality. You take your money. We've all been told this. You put your money in the market, and you leave it alone. You don't touch it. It does go down some, but it goes up, and over time, it will increase. That is correct. It will increase. However, the cost is expensive to leave it in there. Because every time it takes every 50% drop, we all know the math, it doesn't need a 50% gain to get back to zero. Every 50% drop needs 100% gain, so you're having to work twice as hard to get back. So let's compare the two. Let's go all the way back to 1987, all the ones I showed you. So, and we'll start with 100 grand, we'll put it in the NASDAQ, so we're diversified, and we're gonna leave it in because we can't time the market to take it out. All the myths we talked about, all right? And in 1987, there was one of the largest single day crashes ever. You'd have finished the year with 73. But you would have been told, and I know people that have been told, that that's okay, that's what happens. The market goes up, the market goes down. Over time, you'll be ahead. So let's write it out to 2000. Look at that. So they were right. It grew. It grew like crazy. All the Silicon Valley billionaires. Then the dot bomb went off. Two years later, you're down to 126. 07, back up to 237. Credit crash. By the end of 2008, back to 104. And then you ride the longest bull market we've ever had to 2017 till the end of the year, and you're back up to 318. So is the statement correct that if you leave it in over time, it will grow? Yes, it is. 2.5% per year on that one. Now, the S&P itself averages 9, but it has those little sharp ratios because of the dips. Now let's change the game. We know what this does. Now let's just say, just for fun, we're able to skip those three events. We see them coming. We take our money out of the market and hold it over here in cash. We wait for those to go by, and we put the money back in. Same hundred grand. We don't add anything to it. Hundred grand, same amount of time. We skip those three. Where are we at? Guesses? One point two million. More, more or less? More. 2.1. Yeah, you were backwards. Almost. This is the going to be, we are going to join with advisors and brokers and people that want to do this. We've been running now for several years. We have a really good track record of returns. We have a different kind of business model that's a SaaS company. We're a SaaS company. It's a flat fee. You never pay asset under management fees, any of that stuff. Um, and I'm not, I just wanted to introduce you guys to this. He asked me to come do that. Our, our website is iflipinvest.com if you want to look it up. Um, if you guys want to 
actually see the software or have somebody demo it for you, get a hold of Chris. He can actually show you directly how to do that, um, where we'll come set it up and show you how it works. And we can show you how to use the entire platform and build a portfolio that will perform like this in about 15, 20 minutes. It's all point and click, super easy to use. AI is changing the world, and the next big one that's going to get hit with it is the finance world. So that's all I got. I'm Randy. Thanks, guys. Oh, questions. I guess I got a minute. Yes. Thanks for the presentation. Um, so I'm wondering if, you know, if everyone joins the market with AI, it's kind of like, you know, like the Oakland A's with Moneyball. Like they, they beat the curve and then everyone figured out what they're doing and it kind of neutralized it. What will happen if everyone goes to AI? I mean, I don't want to ruin your business model, but. No, no, it, it's a that, fair will that, question. Will that change it and create, swing the market itself if everyone does it? Well, like we were hearing earlier, there's still a human involved. And this particular human, my business partner, has built this on a, a deeper level of learning. So it depends on, we believe we have a head start. At some point, will it start to flatline it out a little bit? I believe it probably will. However, right now, every one of these algorithms, we have 11 different ones right now, they have two algorithms behind it that are maintaining and updating. So if you come into our system tomorrow and you get Facebook with uh, the benchmark algorithm. And then a week later, you buy our software and you do the same thing, Facebook with the benchmark algorithm. Her algorithm is different than his. The algorithms are teaching the algorithms. So it, it, not that it couldn't happen or won't happen, but it, it, you know, we're, uh, we're hoping we're staying in front of it. Uh, okay. Uh, do any of your algorithms uh, include context or world events, or is it all just pattern recognition? It's all price and tactical data, um, because those create knee jerks. They don't create trends, and there's no reason to sell. Uh, if, if Trump tweets something and something takes a big drop or a big gain, doesn't mean to buy or to sell. It's based on the, the data, the, the massive amounts of data over time. Fascinating um, presentation. Um, if so much of the superior return depends on predicting when these crashes are and getting out, do you have historical uh, evidence that you have predicted them? Yes. You, you do. You've been operating. Absolutely. The, these algorithms have been running since the 80s, just manually. I'll give you one, though, on the automation. Last year, this week last year, second week of October, 87% of the money that our software trades got moved all out of the market into cash. Nobody knew why. Well, Kelly, my partner, knew why, but the, our customers were like, what are you doing? It's still going up. However, they were quite happy when it stayed in cash through the entire fourth quarter and they skipped the entire 20% downturn. So, so the, these are actual statistics, yes. not just models? Not just models. No, these are Thank real you. numbers. <laughs> what data goes in to determine the, the algorithm. Depends to, to on the algorithm. They're all different, and they're all designed a little give bit differently. They give you a uh, price is in every one of them. Price over time in comparison to the Bollinger Band is in most of them. Days above, days below, days in a range within the upper or lower Bollinger Band. What about bands. fundamentals like earnings and press releases and no? No. Competition? Those are all driven by, I mean, price is a factor of all of those. 
of every one of those. So I guess kind of they are. Uh, similar to the previous question, if everyone were in your company and then if 87% of the whole market went out of the market, how does the market ever recover from that if everyone took out all of the cash because everyone saw the downturn? You know, um, I, I guess I, I could say that, that, and it's not wishful thinking, um, that would take... It, the Kelly's estimates are right now that we could handle roughly a trillion dollars inside our platform without impacting the market. Is there an element of scale at some point? Probably. But we're also operating in 10 countries. And the algorithms continue to learn. So remember, 80, only 87 went out. There was still some in. And some got in and out during that time. They didn't 100% of the 87 stay out the entire time ready that are available to high net worth folks, such as Renaissance Technologies. Do you have a sense of what percent of the market in terms of assets under management those passive strategies make up currently? And is it a fair statement that what you guys are doing is similar? But we're, the, we're the next generation of, of that. Absolutely. It's a small percent right now. This is the way institutions work. Okay. Sorry. I got to go. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much, Randy. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Live from the Cafe is produced and disseminated by the Venture Cafe Foundation, a nonprofit organization striving to better connect the innovation community. To learn more about our events and resources, please visit us online at VentureCafeCambridge.org or come visit us at One Broadway in Cambridge, Massachusetts every Thursday from 3 to 8 p.m.